Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and with my partner in making business a force for good in the world, Raj Sisodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to see you again. Good to see you again. And, oh, we have a very special guest today. I'll let you do the intro, but part of, I, I want everybody to try to guess who it is because, Raj, I know you recently moved apartments, and I sent you an email said, hey, Raj, how's it going? And Raj sent me back uh, a picture of his closet. And he said, look, isn't this a magnificent closet? And I looked at the closet and I said, wow, that's an impressively organized closet, Raj. What was that all about? <laughs> well, that's a hint as to who we're talking to today. So maybe describe your beautiful closet and then maybe introduce our guest today, Raj. Yeah, so I have the good fortune of having an assistant who works at the container store and is also part-time, helps me out. And so anytime I need organizing, she comes over and works her magic. And before you know it, we have peace of mind and uh, less clutter and we know where everything is and it's just a joyful feeling, you know. So our guest today, of course, is the driving force behind uh, that vision, the container store, uh, co-founder and uh, former CEO, uh, off the container store, Kip Tyndale. Welcome, Kip. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, Timothy. It's so great to see you too. And uh, I look forward to the conversation about our shared passion of conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism. And uh, this will be one of many conversations we've had for many years about that. So thank you for having me. Oh. Well, Kip has created one of the most beloved companies out there an astounding record in terms of being recognized as an uh, incredible place to work. They were consistently on that list for 20 years. And actually number one, what, how many times Skip number one place to work in America? Yeah. Fortune's 100 best companies to work for in America. We were number one twice. And then we were number two twice. And we've been on the list 19 or 20 years in a row. And that makes it easy when you open a new store in a new city. Um, gosh, they, we only hire two or 3% of the people. And one of our guiding foundation principles is one great person is equal to three good people in business productivity. So a uh, very high service environment where we're trying to help people uh, organize the, the kids toy area. And, and, you know, you're, you're liable to be, you're likely to be uh, helped by somebody who's uh, been at the container store for 10 years and actually knows a lot about organizing toy storage and actually cares. So it's, uh, uh, it's a, great, a great payoff when you're selling, I would say 80% of the things that we sell are for other than their intended purposes. You know, we have, uh, we have baskets that are made for uh, collecting eggs, but we sell them as gardening uh, tool things and delightful things like that. And, and what we've learned over the my goodness, now 42 years of building this business is that um, life's a little better when you're organized. You know, when you're getting two or three kids ready for school in the morning, and if they're unorganized and you're disorganized, everything's terrible. People are crying. But if you're organized, 
everything is great and, and there's a little uh, the, the little girl's school uniform is perfectly pressed. There's a little love note from mom and dad in the school. Lunch. Being organized just makes life a little bit better. <laughs> well, I, I love the uh, the phrase that you that you use at the container store, or the idea of the man in the desert, and uh, and maybe talk a little bit about that concept and how you use it as a way to onboard some of your your new your new people, or or to reinforce some important ideas. Well, yeah, we, uh, you know, we have a, a business that's based on seven foundation principles and um, they were all kind of maybe corny, but very um, do unto others type um, concepts uh, that really do guide our business actions. They're not just things written on the wall of the home office. If you ask people that work at any store, you know, it's, so that rather than having a big thick policy book. We're like, well, why do we do it that way? Well, you know, we do it that way because of the man in the desert thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a little bit like they say that most jokes are written in, in prison because people uh, have a lot of time in their hands. And so they don't at lunch, they don't bother to tell the whole joke. They just say number 27 and everybody laughs. And so that's the same. That's our explanation for everything we do and don't do is these seven foundation principles. And it's the ultimate and in really um, uh, empowering and arming uh, all employees with the ability to make um, customers not just happy and satisfied, but astonished. We're looking for astonishment. And um, <clears throat> so the man of the desert is just that there's this guy that lives on an oasis. And, the, and, you know, I made this up. All seven of these things were, I have a little philosophy epistle book. I used to call it at Jesuit high school in Dallas and then in college. And it became uh it was, it was a list of all the greatest thoughts that I'd ever heard or read or been taught or even, or even thought of myself. And this, this one you can tell I thought of myself because it's so silly. But the guy's living on the desert, and, and he looks out there, and there's this guy crawling through the desert near death. And uh, water, water. So the guy goes up and offers him a canteen of water and then pats himself on the back and thinks that he's done something wonderful. And we're like – okay, well, you know, can't you do better than that? Let's, let's invite the guy into the oasis. Let's get him some shade. Uh, let's, let's, let's call his uh, family and tell them that he's okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to intuit his needs. Uh, we're going to be human beings here. Um, he's he's going to ask for water, but we're going to give him a lot more than that. And, you know, the way the story's told in the stores and whatnot is the guys in the chase lounge and the in the swimming pool after a while, and he's got a margarita, and, you know, he's, you know, it's so it's, it's intuit, intuiting a stranger's needs, which is what um, retail and helping people in the true sense of the word is all about. Um, you're not doing something bad to somebody when you help them in the true sense of the word. You're doing something wonderful for them, and they're ecstatic about it. And their heartbeat races in a positive way. And they go home and they tell their next door neighbors about the great customer service thing they got. They got the man in the desert uh, treatment. And, and when they get home and use that stuff, they don't curse you and hate you. They love you because it actually really works. And it's exactly solved this storage and organization problem that's been bugging you for years. It could be something as pedestrian as the, the kitchen drawer just being a jumbled mess or the uh, of the linen closet, and it's people get very, very excited 
when somebody intuits their needs and solves these problems and then they go, that's how we built our business. You know, one uh, astonishingly satisfied customer at a time. And it's so much fun for the customer and so much fun for us. And that's the man of the desert story, Timothy. <laughs> I think you, you, uh, you use the phrase heroic selling that comes out of that story, right? Because a lot of people are hesitant to be in, in a selling mode, right? Especially nice people. And I think the way you frame it is that when you actually, when somebody came in for a shoe closet problem and you ask them about their pantry and you ask them about their kids' toys and everything else, you're actually helping make their life better. So it's heroic selling. It's not selling from the standpoint of what more can I squeeze out of this person, but how else can I make their life better? And I think that's kind yeah, of the gist of it. It's almost not even a transactional mm. uh, relationship. It's actually kind of a human helping relationship. And most retail salespeople across the world are really, are really only trying to get through their life without being ever accused of being a pushy salesperson. They don't want to be a pushy salesperson. So this man in the desert thing takes the moral imperative and it actually puts it on, on, on helping the customer, on selling them, on doing something. If you wimp out, if you just go, oh, and you don't do anything, well, then she leaves the store uh, unfulfilled. The, the, the problem hasn't happened. But if you do this, uh, she leaves the store astonished and happy. And um, yeah, that's, it's okay to sell when you sell in the true sense of the word. It's not only okay, you must do that if you're going to be a compassionate and good person. Um, you know, I'm, I'm big on trying to build a business where uh, everybody involved with the business thrives. And so we've built this employee first culture at the container store, but uh, boy, the, the, the way you make a customer thrive is not by whipping out and ignoring them. <laughs> Well, I love the idea uh, that you know one of the thing, one of the gifts that that you've given me over the years, Kip, is um, um, really bringing to life. Uh, you know, when people ask, you know, like at the heart of it, what makes a great culture? And and I go back and I and I think of the lessons that I've learned from you, and I say, really, there's two things. It, it's um, helping people to feel cared for in the workplace, and then secondly. Um, helping them create meaning. And I think you just did a great job of, you know, it's not about selling, it's about meaning. I, I'm helping somebody solve an issue or a problem they have. And if I do a really good job of that, I feel like I've, I've done something good today. And the second piece being the caring bit. And, uh, and I, I recall, boy, this must have been eight years ago, nine years ago, you hosted a day for conscious capitalism at the container store. And I think you had just, it was just after the Great Recession. And it was just after February 14th. And that was the first February 14th when you did something with your employees that I thought was so cool. You maybe want to tell people about, as a sign of caring, what happened on, on February 14th at the Container Store. Well, February 14th is We Love Our Employees Day. At the, at the container store. We really do love our employees. And um, um, I think, I think uh, love in the workplace is really, really important. Um, people are afraid to talk about it. I try to weave that concept into every talk I give and uh, anything I write. Um, um, we, we do love our employees. We do love our customers. We do love our fellow workers. It is a second family, uh, almost any of our employees will tell you that. Um, 
uh, people, customers don't like the container store. They love the container store. And so we try to find ways uh, every Valentine's Day to illustrate um, we love our employees and it can be um, a myriad different bunch of corny uh, 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 ways where we're um, the executives are, uh, there's a big parking lot at the home office and it's a long walk. And so we um, uh, valet park for the employees or we can um, cook special, beautiful uh, meals. We have a huge, we have, we have a million square foot distribution center in Coppell, Texas. And, and the roof of it has a big logo of the container store. And then a, we love our employees uh, thing and kind of Valentine's red. And it's the, it's the landing pattern for DFW airport. So it's the, it's the world's largest billboard to an organization loving its employees. And we were announcing to the world that by cracky, we do love our employees and, 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 and how, how can we be more innovative in figuring out how to, um, how to illustrate that. And the thing that I'm probably most satisfied in my business career is that in an industry where there, there's a triple digit, more than 100% uh, employee turnover, which means the average retail employee in America doesn't even last the year, uh, uh, we, we, have a, we have had for most of our history a single digit, you know, below 10%. That can vary uh, at times like, um, you know, the Great Recession or COVID, but uh, generally speaking, it's, it's a tenth or less, of, uh, less than a tenth of the uh, industry average. People join the container store and they never leave. That's why I mentioned earlier that, you know, the person waiting on your store really does know how to organize your toy store, Jerry, because they've been working there 11 years or whatever. I love that. I, I mean, that's the ultimate compliment that all of our efforts to paying well and having great benefits and, and truly loving our employees uh, has paid off. And I don't think a customer can love a business until – uh, until the employees do. If the employees don't like the business, it's, it's, it's impossible for the customer to. And so we can all think of great examples uh, of that. But yeah, um, I think the world would be a lot better place if uh, uh, people would bring love into their their, uh, their workplace, not be afraid to use the word in the business environment. Um, um, you know, uh, John Mackey, the Whole Foods guy, uh, talks about love in the work in the workplace. Um, who's the Southwest Airlines guy, Raj? Um, Herb Kelleher. Herb Kelleher talked about love in the workplace all the time. I was never sure what kind of love uh, Herb was talking about, but no, <laughs> Herb, Herb, Herb talked about love, all, and his employees love that company, you know. And so I miss Herb so much. We both grew up in Dallas, but anyway, yeah, we love our employees there. So I, I love that. I mean, I think the. Um... When you say it, it feels so normal and natural. And I was uh, just re recently listening to uh, a program by the author of uh, Homo Sapiens. And in it, he talks about the fact that uh, what made us Homo Sapiens special was our ability to organize into larger groups. And the reason why we were able to beat the Neanderthals because you know they could only be in a family unit of thirty or forty people, but we could organize into a hundred people, and we could do that because we could build trust and we could build relationships with one another. And it seems to me sometimes so obvious and yet so counterintuitive to so many business people 
that this is all about relationships. <laughs> this, this is about creating relationships with the people that work with you, the people that you work for, uh, and for your your stakeholders more broadly. It's about it's we're in the relationship business. Anybody who's in business is in the relationship business. And yet, while I know for us that seems so obvious, it seems so counterintuitive to the traditional business narrative. Guys, why? <laughs> business is absolutely just about relationships. Um, you know, we um, um, at the container store, we say you can't tell the difference between a vendor and an employee. So we've discussed how we take care of employees, but we take care of vendors in the exact same way. We have these long-term relationships with these manufacturers. And what it results in is that um, um, even when we don't buy as much of a product as a giant mass merchant, uh, we very likely might have the best price in the country on that product from that vendor so that we can compete with that mass uh, merchant on, 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 on price. In other words, we buy it cheaper than they do, not because we buy more of it than the mass merchant, but because we have a vastly better relationship with the manufacturer than that mass merchant does. And our vendors love us and we love them. And that leads to relationships that endure for decades. Uh, and God, Sharon, who's my wife, who's the uh, past president and longtime chief merchant, we would go on vacations with these vendors. And while we were having fun on vacations, we would create the world's greatest shoebox and it would be exclusive to us. And, and we're so weird that we get excited about doing things like creating the world's best shoebox. We get excited as heck about that. And, uh, you know, those kind of relationships allow innovation and fun, and it's just the best way to do business. And so that's the ultimate of the supply chain stakeholder model, uh, taking care of your vendors. Heck, we had a, uh, a company, Iris USA, that had a factory in Wisconsin and it was a promising line. And uh, it was, it was very high end plastic storage devices. They were, they were injection molded plastic, but the factory was in Wisconsin and the freight was 17% coming from Wisconsin to our central distribution center in Dallas. And so we got to talking about what, how inefficient that was. And the owner of the business um, decided to build another factory uh, uh, right in Dallas, right, right there. Uh, it was a handshake deal. It was a, a, a outpouring of um, uh, trust and relationship, and um, it saved us 17% freight. He, he had there's no contract or anything. He just did it, and uh, and he went from being our 53rd largest vendor to our second largest vendor after that. <laughs> That's how you build business. Business is about relationships. So, well, kid. We're always interested here in uh, how conscious leaders became that way. And it's usually some combination of something innate in you or, and your parents and how they brought you up and what values they inculcated and, and your education. And so if you could talk a little bit about how you were shaped, how do you understand, how, how did you emerge to be the kind of human being and the kind of leader that you became? What were some of the formative uh, influences on you and how did that show up in, in this particular business? I know there was a passion that you had even as a, as a youngster for organizing. Yeah, um, I was oddball enough to where my parents went out at night and I was a young 
teenager or something, I would surprise them by reorganizing the pantry. And when they came home, they were, they were astonished, you know? And uh, I think my dad probably worried about that a little bit and maybe rightfully so, but uh, it, all, it all worked out. But I was always very interested in um, reading and literature. I majored in English. I wanted to major in uh, philosophy, but my dad wouldn't let me. So I majored in English, which of course is the same thing. And uh, um, very interested in existentialism. So I did go to, uh, I, I'm a, I don't even think I qualify as a mediocre Catholic. I'm a, I'm a less than mediocre uh, Catholic, but I did go to Jesuit high school in Dallas and they had a lot of um, very existential oriented young priests who weren't much older than us that taught us, uh, you know, gosh, you're 17, 16, 18 years old and you're running around talking about uh, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and all that. And I, I, I loved that stuff and I read everything. And, uh, I carefully kept um, the greatest thoughts that I had heard and of, uh, in this little uh, file. And when we started a business, I'll tell you, when you start a business, you, you're, you're really lucky because you, you get to kind of form the culture based on your view of the world and uh, uh, as the founder of a business. And I really thought... Um, I searched into that file and found the thoughts that I thought were uh, were most noble and most practical to building a business to, so that you don't want to have, say you have 10,000 employees, you can't have 10,000, we, we can't be 10,000 yahoos going in 10,000 different directions. We have to agree on, on strategy. We have to agree on a d- direction. And so I said, let's agree on these as being the ends E-N-D-S, and, and then we will liberate our, every employee to f- create their own means to those ends. But, um, you know, uh, one of them is Andrew Carnegie's statement as he lay on his deathbed, and he was asked what, what he attributed all his incredible business uh, uh, success to, and he said, yeah, there's one beacon, there's one guiding light to uh, that I attribute all my business success to. What's that, What's that Andrew? Well, it's, it's fill the other guy's basket to the brim, Making money then becomes an easy proposition. Fill the other guy's basket to the brim. Making money then becomes an easy proposition. That's the exact opposite of what everybody grew up thinking, that, you, that, that life and business are a zero-sum game and you have to somehow screw around the other guy in order to get ahead. Uh, nothing can be farther from the truth. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I got very excited about that and, 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 and literally trying to build the, the culture about that. Employees, my God. When they hear their boss talking like that, that's somebody they want to work for. You know, they, they don't want to work for the zero-sum uh, game guy that thinks that everything's a completely transactional uh, uh, thing. And I, I, think, uh, I think conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, is pretty, uh, pretty, can be boiled down to, hey, business is not a zero-sum game. And, and, and the, the, the companies and the people that are gaining the most market share and having – uh, the best success in business are the people that understand that and practice that, like the vendor relationships that we were talking about. When we built that million square foot distribution center, uh, the, the, the town of Capel, who's a very traditional values oriented, family oriented town, said, you're going you're gonna to locate an IRC. Uh, we were going to go somewhere else. They said, no, we want you here because we're proud of you being uh, a local company. So they gave us the best um, tax advantages and, and everything that you can 
than they had ever given anybody. And, and we weren't the biggest business, but we got the, the best everything. And we said, okay. And, and we have a subsidized cafeteria at the home office and distribution center. And um, it's filled with uh, Coppell policemen and fire chiefs and everything. We're subsidized, right? We, 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 <laughs> we try to get people to eat healthy. And so it's a little bit more expensive if, if it's organic and all. And so we're subsidizing a lot. Heck, we're subsidizing. But, you know, it's not too bad to have the policemen and the, and the fire guys around, right? It makes, makes you feel safe. So I don't know. Um, uh, Garrett Boone, their co-founder, and John Mullen and all the other early people that helped build the business were proud of these philosophies, proud of these cultures. Um, I, I think that nonprofit is wonderful and we need nonprofit, but business is something like, 10,000 times bigger than all the nonprofits. And, and we poor, frail little human beings are so um, caught up in our, mm. our self-image and our sense of self-worth is so caught up in what we do for a living. I'm not saying it should be that way, but business is important. And so I think, I think that a lot of us can do more for the world by creating uh, conscious capitalists, businesses modeling how to take care of employees, modeling how to take care of vendors. Uh, I always thought that we were doing more for the world than if I just retired and, and devoted myself to other things. Now I am retired and I basically spend most of my time trying to work with people like Raj and Timothy to help usher the world from, um, you know, shareholder supremacy model of doing business. And uh, people call it shareholder primacy. I call it shareholder supremacy because that's really what it is uh, to a, a stakeholder model. And we're, we're getting there as, um, as I think most of you recognize, uh, we've got the business roundtable agreeing with us now. We've got uh, the key politicians around the world and uh, agreeing with us. So, um, you know, we, we, uh, we can, I, I think the straight line, Timothy, from where we are as a world and where we want to be as a world is through conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, if we can just make the world of business mm. that way, uh, we'll get there more quickly than if we try to do it any other way. Well, you know, we're, we're true believers here. And, um, and one of the things that I think is interesting, because some people will sometimes try to put us in a box and say, oh, yeah, that's all that soft stuff, Kip. And, um, and, you know, and, and I will sometimes when I'm giving a talk sort of say, hey, listen, uh, conscious capitalism isn't an excuse for not having a good business model or not being able to execute or having a good strategy. You, you need to have those things, but that makes you a good business. But the thing that starts to differentiate you and really make you successful is these other things. And, you know, having said that, I'm curious, how, how did you balance that when in your business in terms of um, you know, a great culture, really people focused, strong relationships, lots of trust, lots of caring, and at the same time, bringing in the discipline around executing, the discipline around having a good business model and, and those kinds of things. In your mind, how did you blend those? Well, I think that um, <clears throat> when people love their fellow worker, love their business, love their culture, um, they try to uh, excel at it. They're engaged, uh, they're passionate about it. Um, they do everything they can to help that company succeed. Um, 
you know, um, but but there have to be metrics. I mean, we're we're we're, we're very metric driven. Uh, I believe in the power of intuition, but it has to be balanced with metrics. Uh, your intuition is best on the things you know the best. So I do a lot of fly fishing, and if I intuit there's a trout under that rock over there, there probably is. And if I'm teaching you to fly fish and you've never done it, and you intuit that there's a, a trout under that stone over there, there's probably not. And so you can trust your intuition on things you know the best. Otherwise, you need data. And so uh, I remember that we used to, when we first started implementing a lot of measurements in the distribution center, and we were trying to make people understand that this is, this is good, this is not bad, this is freedom, this is liberty, this is not harnessing. Um, this one woman, uh, we didn't use anybody's names, but we posted the next day the performance metrics. And this one woman said, God, I'm absolutely last in the whole distribution. We didn't have the names on there. They just had a code so you could identify yourself. I'm last in the whole distribution center. I had no idea. I thought I was pretty damn good at this. And, and, and then the next time it was measured, she was above the midpoint. She had gone from the very bottom to above just by the recognition of that. And she wanted to contribute. You know, she wanted to. It's You see it on teams, sports teams that have great chemistry um, and, and um a lot of egalitarians, uh, uh, a lot of egalitarian approaches, servant leadership by the management team. Um, everybody, everybody wants to contribute. Uh, we, we try to measure everything. Uh, we have um, compassionate conversations when somebody just isn't uh, cutting it. Uh, management probably is failing if somebody is really bad at something, uh, we're all good at some things and bad at other things. So uh, we have the patience to um, find what this person really uh, can do better. All, all of that, all of that just brings about a very positive, productive workforce. Um, we all know the stats about how unengaged most American workers are. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to be productive if you hate your business, if you're not engaged, but um, gosh, um, if you're surrounded by people that you truly love and respect, uh, you want to, you want to do, you want to do well. And I think, I think that 99% of all workers around the world, what they really want is they want to go to work in the morning. They want to look forward to going to work in the morning and they want to work at things and with people that they really like and, and ideally cherish, ideally love. And they want to feel like that they did something, some great stuff with people that they really care about. And then they go home at night and they feel so much better about themselves than, um, than they do otherwise. And, and so an employer that promotes that type of thing, a company that, that builds that type of thing, builds a better world, one fulfilled employee at a time, as opposed to a bad company where people are beaten down at work you know, that fulfilled worker that feels that way after a, after a great day's work, uh, they, they go home and they treat their golden retriever better. Uh, they treat the person at the 7-Eleven that they stop off on the way to work a little bit better. You're, you're building a better world, one fulfilled, happy, productive, enthusiastic employee at a time. So every time a new company decides to employ these things, um, you know, you, you do that. And, and we've long since passed the point where people think it's um, – um, uh, less productive than the other way. It's, it's more productive the other way. This is how you retain good talent. This is how you have customers that are passionate about. This is how you have vendors that, that, that create better synergies. Uh, if all you really wanted to do 
was make more money more quickly, I would submit to you that this is the way to do it. And uh, it also is, of course, a hell of a lot more enjoyable. You spend more time working than anything else. So why not, why not work in this kind of environment rather than that type of environment? But it also makes more money. Uh, not every time people say, well, what about this conscious capitalism company that didn't do, do that well? I'm like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's lots of uh, shareholder supremacy uh, model companies that don't do that well either. It's, it's not 100% in either direction. This just tends to do quite a bit better than the old way. And the world is changing to demand it. Employees demand it, um, you know, uh, so that you, I, I just don't think you can be competitive unless you're doing a good job at this. And in order to dominate your niche, you're going to have to do a great job at this. But I'm preaching to the preachers. You know, I mean, this is fun talking to y'all about this. It's a little bit silly, though, because you know all this stuff at least as well as I do. Well, my my one of my early memories of you, Kip, I think the first Conscious Capitalism Conference where uh, I met you, 2008, and I was asked to put together a, a breakout session, and the recession was raging, as you recall, at the time. And so we had a session in which you and um, uh, the CEO of REI, uh, who later Sally became, Jewell. Yeah, she you became Obama's uh, Secretary of the Interior. Yeah. Right. And, and the theme there was, how do you survive this kind of a downturn as a retailer? And it was fascinating to me that both of you came up with the exact same idea and almost the same language, where you talked about protecting the weakest of the employees, the part-time employees. Were the, normally in most companies, those, those are the first to be let go. And both REI and Container Store said, no, actually, they need this job more than anybody else. And they said, we call them primetime employees, not part-time employees. And we actually took salary cuts and other things for full-time people and managers so that we could protect uh, those people. So that's just, to me, was a, a really a strong reflection of where the values are. And uh, if you could speak to that a little bit, what was your thinking and why do you call them primetime employees? <laughs> Yeah, well, Sally Jewell is a wonderful conscious capitalist. Uh, I was thrilled for her to be a cabinet-level position under the Obama administration. Uh, she and I still uh, try to do things together. That, that little talk that we gave together, um, um, there, were, there were other breakout sessions going on, and, and, and our word spread, and it just overflowed. And, and so that, that discussion was about um, how do you um, – take care of, uh, you know, the employee stakeholder during tough economic times. And that, that's really when it gets tough. Uh, if you have a CEO and a, and a management team at a business that's doing really well um, with conscious capitalism, um, the board and the shareholders are okay with that as long as times are good. Uh, Jim Senegal, the co-founder of Costco, who's a big hero of mine, and uh, he taught me that every great company has its stock fall by more than 50% at least three times a decade. And um, I didn't believe him, but I checked it out. I mean, Amazon was like eight times. Once, they, once Amazon stock fell more than 90%, at that time, that's when you really have the pressure from the, from the board, from the shareholders to, um, you know, to lay off people, to abandon uh, uh, things that you, you felt like have worked during good times. And so... Uh, we're seeing the greatest test I've ever seen of that now with COVID. Um, um, you know, at, at the time I was at the container store, we never laid anybody off, but uh, we, we, we brought people together during the Great Recession 
And um, we, um, like a family holding hands at the dinner table, uh, we decided that we were going to freeze salaries. We were going to not do 401k for a while. Uh, Did everybody agree with this? Uh, we, We went very, very grassroots for solutions to the downturn. Uh, we had lost 15% of our sales. And heck, we in those days, we, we had 20% gains every year. We never had a 15% decline. So uh, we didn't ivory tower it. I didn't decide what we were going to do. Uh, and, and, and the solutions that, that you get when you truly respectfully go grassroots on how can we, we're going to need to reduce everything that we do by 15% cost in order to match 15% revenue. And if we can do that, we can protect everybody's jobs. Um, and so you have uh, warehouse workers that are coming up with um, ways to save money and, and processes that, um, that you and I would never think of. That, that, and then you implement that and then, and then others do that. It's, it's um, um, people want to do that. We, 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 we got through the recession, great. We saved everybody's job. Uh, a, a year or two later, we, we started having uh, salary increases again for everybody and we reinstituted 401k. But um, I remember each vice president was charged in their area to go out and do this and then they would all meet. And, and, and it's, like, it's like old guys that go to war together, you know, the bond and unity that they have. And, and they come back and tell their war stories about how they say, we say at 15% or more just about everything that we did because it was out of necessity. And uh, people were proud to um, have their uh, salaries not cut, just frozen. Um, and that worked really well for that crisis. Now for this crisis, where you don't lose 15% of your revenue, but if you're, uh, particularly if you're an upper-end restaurant, you might lose 85% of it. Um, uh, uh, it would be a whole different set of um of circumstances. And I've watched people like Danny Meyer, you know, the great New York restauranteur, uh, suffer through that and innovate through that and come up with great ways to do the very best he can for his employees and his customers. And there's, there's been a lot of good that's come out of that in terms of the innovation. But um, this is, um, uh, you, you, you listen to your people, you, uh, you, you, you remember their humanity and their caring, uh, uh, Laying people off is uh, probably necessary in many service industry uh, cases during COVID because people lose all their revenue. Uh, uh, but uh, but forestalling that, doing as little of that as possible allows you to bounce back much more quickly. Uh, the year or two after the Great Recession, you know, the container store had by far its best couple of years. And I think it's because of the way that we approached that. Plus, we were all proud of the business we're conducting mm-hmm. itself that way. It's a custom set of solutions for every different business. You know, if you're um, if you're unlucky enough to be uh, in the hospitality uh, uh, industry during this crisis, that's different than if you're, um, you know, in, in other forms of businesses. But um, you talk about rewarding to see people sacrifice for one another. And, 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 and innovate for one another out of necessity. That was, uh, that was probably our finest hour. Uh, you know, we've been through other crises, but not one as severe as that. Well, I think it's fascinating. Um, you're on the board of a, of a couple of other companies. And, and I'm curious as to 
you know, you mentioned, you know, the boards all, you know, fair weather friends <laughs> in a sense. Things are going well. We're all on board. Things get a little tough. Uh, some of the boards get tougher. And I'm curious in terms of the boards that you sit on and your experience with boards, what ought to be the role of the board and, and how do you help boards evolve into a more conscious capitalist space? Well, I think uh, it's important that board members, no matter how celebrated they are, understand that the CEO and the management team understand a heck of a lot more about the business that they're involved with than they do. Uh, so, um, you know, there needs to be a lot more humility on the part of a lot of board board pe people. Um, um, that isn't always the case. It's particularly not the case when things are going poorly. There needs to be a very long-term orientation. There's a stewardship to building a business. You know, Sharon and I and others built this business for 40 years. Um, I've got this place in Colorado where we've got a lot of acres and I'm just a temporary steward of this land, and 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 we. Um, in fact, my neighbor, when he died, he he, he uh, gave me his acreage. He didn't give it to me; he sold it to me at a very low price because he said, "Anybody else who screw it up, you won't screw it up." So we we didn't need any more acres. But you know, there's a stewardship in land and building a business. It's a long-term orientation. Um, it's it's important for. Uh, board members to try to understand that. I used to think that a great culture and a really powerful CEO could overcome short-termism and activist investors, but that's, that's not longer, no longer true. You know, activist investing costs Whole Foods, it's um, independence uh, in, in, in spite of how uh, strong the CEO is and how great the culture was. Paul Pullman had all the difficulties, uh, you know, with his business. Uh, you know, there's, it's, in this day of activist investor and, and, and short-term orientation, if, if you hit a bump in the road, <laughs> more than anything, you need shareholders. Uh, people say you get the shareholders you deserve. That's really true. But you want long-term oriented shareholders and wise stewards uh, at, at, the, at the board level because it's all good as long as the stock price is going up 20% a year. But boy, it's not when it's, when it's, when it, when it's going down the other, the other way. So that's what we're all working towards. Uh, uh, getting there to be um, more recognition of, and and it's 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 improving. Uh, I think we're approaching a tipping point, um, and I, and I do think that most board members secretly uh, don't understand securities law, and all they really want to do is avoid you know uh, uh, kind of CYA uh, uh, themselves during tough times in, in, in the securities law basis. So very often the um, private equity firm or major shareholder, the, the, the guy, usually it's a guy in the, in, in the boardroom that understands security uh, law uh, the most, can wield security law as a weapon to intimidate other directors into doing things that are um, short-term oriented and not in the in, in long-term stewardship interest of the business. But that's beginning to change. There's a lot more education on it. And um, I have, Timothy, I've gotten off of uh, all of my uh, uh, public company boards, private company boards. I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of two organizations, um, uh, Imperative 21 and Just Capital. And then Raj and I are co-chairs, of course, of Conscious Capitalism. And that takes all my time. I'm on the boards of a bunch of small uh, 
little companies where uh, people come to me and they want me to advise them on how to build a conscious capitalist company. And sometimes, rarely, I'll actually invest or be on their board or something. But um, um, my real loves are conscious capitalism, Imperative 21. Imperative 21 is... Uh, um, my dream has always been that the 20 or so organizations that are like conscious capitalism can come together as one and we can quit focusing on our differences and, and believe that we're all pulling for the same thing. And if you study movements like civil rights movement and God isn't amazing how we haven't come as far as we thought we had, but if you, when the global progress was made was when the, the various organizations came together and worked together as one, we're trying to do that with imperative 21 uh, we have B-Lab and B-Team and CECP, which is Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose and Conscious Capitalism and uh, Just Capital. Just Capital is another one that I'm on the Executive Committee Board uh, with. And what it does is it tracks and analyzes and engages with the largest corporations in America who have the most to learn about some of this and their investors on, on how they perform according to the public's priority. Uh, the public's priority um, you know, just capital figures out and polls and analyzes and has this amazing data of what the average human being in the United States thinks makes a good and just company. And then we aggregate that and teach that to the largest companies in America. It, 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 it's so important. So as a CEO, you think that you're really paying well this, this particular area of worker and the benefits are great, but you know we've got data that shows that you're, you know, mediocre, and that, that it, 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 the data is undeniable. And here's the expectation of the average worker: it, it, it really does a lot of good. So, um, you know, I'm enjoying my just capital work and my imperative 21 work and my conscious capitalism work. And I, I don't think I would join the board of Apple if they called and asked. Now they're not going to call and ask, but uh, I think at, at a certain stage of our lives we can devote ourselves to that type of thing. And, uh, and I've also learned that there's more to life than business. Uh, mm. Sharon and I can uh, really have the freedom to relax and uh, spend more time with family and friends. It's hard to do that when you're building a business, you're traveling everywhere, you know, you're working way too many hours a day. So uh, we're kind of enjoying being retired and uh, trying to help ourselves and others get through, uh, get through this COVID uh, thing. Well, I love the, the the fact that you pointed out Just Capital. I think they've been incredible in, in even just keeping their list of how the big companies are responding uh, to COVID. I thought that was just great that on their site, you could go and you could see a list of, of who they were saying were the, the best responders. And, and as importantly, what were the examples of what they were doing? So people could look at that list and sort of say, oh, that's an idea. I hadn't thought of that. And I want to sort of learn so much. Small, yeah. small business people could look at that list and see how the um, the largest companies in the world were, were 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 doing great things to deal with COVID. How do we make our workers feel uh, more safe in the distribution center? What is reasonable? Is it is is it reasonable for me to spend money on this uh, safety solution or that safe? Well, look, all of these companies are doing it. It must be okay, you know. So. Yeah, it's very important work. Very important. And 
And, you know, uh, maybe this is pushing it a little too far, but, you know, you brought up, you know, let's say private equity, for example, and there's some people out there who are sort of saying, well, you know, private equity is evolving. There's more of these evergreen funds that they recognize that sometimes, or at least some parts of that industry, which you might call patient capital, like our friends at Satori Capital, who've been involved with conscious capitalism for a while, who sort of say, look, this is a better way of making business. What role does, or, or what role should others be playing, like Just Capital, like Imperative 21, like Conscious Capitalism, in encouraging the investment community to <coughs> be looking at this through a different lens and, and evolving their practice so that there's better alignment between these kinds of purpose, stakeholder-driven businesses and, and the money? Well, I'm really big on that. Those of us that work with conscious capitalism, so we're we're used to and good at you know helping young entrepreneurs build a business that's conscious capitalist in nature. Uh, but also, how we invest our money uh, has just as much to do with it. And uh, um, you know, Sharon and I, long time ago when we first got married, we first started the business. We we started saving fifty percent of our income, fifty uh, percent. And, and our income was, well, $700 a month. This was 40 years ago, but and then $1,000 a month and then $1,200 a month. And uh, I remember my partner, Garrett Moon, saying if he ever made $20,000 a year, uh, he wouldn't know what to do with all the money. And I'm like, oh, well, come on, we can do better than that. But um, it, um, uh, we saved half of it. And the reason we saved half of it, because we wanted to invest it uh, in companies that we thought were, were good and just and conscious companies. So we invested in Whole Foods rather than Safeway. We invested in Southwest Airlines versus some of the other airlines. And, and, and sure enough, uh, those companies did better than their competitors because of who and what they were. And we only had to suit ourselves. I, you know, okay, if it's a founder-led company, if they have low turnover, those are pretty good issues. What else can you find that, that makes you think that this company is um, a good and just company? And, you know, um, for most of its history, the container store was the best investment a, a person could, could make. Uh, we hit a few bumps in the roads right after we went public. Um, you know, like, like just retail changed at that point. And, uh, and so there's been some ups and downs. But prior to that, it was just straight up like a rocket ship. But Sharon and I actually wound up making more money out of those investments uh, saving half of our money and, and putting it in companies like that that we thought were good than we even did with that that great investment. So I've, I've long been an advocate of, um, um, of investing in good and just companies, conscious capitalist companies, and, and, and that helps the world to, to help fund those companies. And, and it helps you because you're going to make a heck of a lot more money investing in companies like that than you do um, in, in the other companies. And Ed Freeman, you know, who a lot of people, well, I'll attribute him as being the, the, the father, the, 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 the creator of the stakeholder model. And, and Tom Gardner, the, the wacky, wonderful um, um, brother, uh, he and his brother founded uh, Motley Fool, and Tom's a good friend, and Ed's a good friend. Uh, we're going to write a book. We keep saying we need to get to it. We're going to write a book, and the title of it's going to be pretty much um, Why the Stakeholder Model is always your best investment guide, always. And so um, 
that's the only kind of companies I invest in. I've got time to fool with my investments now that I'm uh, retired and, and I just love it. And I, I, I want the world to understand. I want to help prove to the world that, that, that if all you want to do is make more money more quickly, this is the way to do it. And, uh, and of course, just as working at a good company uh, or building a good company is good for the world, investing in that company uh, is, is good too. You can set your own criteria, you know, uh, but um, uh, just capital helps on a large scale with people. But um, uh, a lot of people just do it because they think that that airline is, is, is better people than this airline or that, you know, no, I'm not going to invest in that, um, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I, I find it to be very uh, rewarding and challenging. And um, I, I always joke that the only two things I can do really well are organized closets and fish. But, um, but my friends are starting to say, well, you're also very, very good at investing. And so I, I, I'm about, about ready to start admitting that. And now I've got a lot of friends that have some money that, that want me to invest their money for them. And I do it. I won't take any pay for it because, you know, I, don't, I just do it as a friend. And, uh, and it's, it's spreading. Uh, in fact, Tom Gardner and I have talked about starting something where we more formally uh, do that for people. But um, it doesn't work 100% of the time, but you'll be shocked at how much better these types of companies perform uh, investment-wise than, than the other type. And it's happening more and more and more as the world demands that of, of companies. I don't know if I answered the question, but I talked about one of my favorite things there. Okay, but I think you, you, know, you built a great company, of course, and now you've moved on into the next phase of your life. You are somewhat retired, but I know you're also actively trying to make the world a better place. And I think your, your sort of personal power is only growing. And I, I see great things ahead in terms of your impact, not only through Imperative 21, which you were one of the visionaries behind bringing all of these uh, entities, which are each powerful in their own right, but together they have tremendous impact. And so I, I really see you as, as one of the primary people making the case for better business and bringing that into the world of policy, bringing that into the world of uh, uh, academia. Also, to an extent, you're inspiring people in that world as well. Well, thank you. I think it's, um, 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 you know, the way to, to be happy, uh, the way to lead a, an interesting and intellectually stimulating and wonderful life is um, I think really to try to uh, make everybody around you thrive. And uh, uh, that's really what we're trying to do now. Our friends, uh, the people that we do business with, the people that we touch through Conscious Capitalism, Imperative 21, Just Capital, um, trying to make everyone thrive. Is Thank you everybody for listening in on episode 15. And wherever you're listening, there's probably a subscription button. So please hit that subscription button and subscribe to us. And if you have any thoughts or comments, please go to the ConsciousCapitalism.com website. And there's a place there where you can send a message to Raj and I. And Raj, your favorite ending is to remind everybody of? Well, you said ConsciousCapitalism.com, but you meant ConsciousCapitalists.com. I did. And also go to ConsciousCapitalism.org to learn about uh, the nonprofit and the movement. And uh, please do uh, join up and become part of that. Thank you, everybody.